Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Start again with this poem because it will uh, hopefully be a reminder of of where we're moving from fear into something else quite profound and beautiful. This is this poem by Rashani. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. Mm, That's by Rashani. So, uh, having explored fear, or at least touching it a bit, it's not like we've come to the end of it. Um, When you do, let me know and uh, we'll put you in the fully enlightened category. We can move into exploring trust. What trust is, how we can um, access it, where it comes from, and some uh, practices Uh, particularly that can help us connect with that sense of trust. So the few things I want to say, the word trust uh, in Pali is really the same root as the word faith, the word being sadha. S-A-D-D-H-A, sadha, which literally means to put one's heart upon. It's the first of the five faculties, five spiritual faculties, which are also, when matured, become what are called the five powers. And from trust or faith comes the effort to practice, to be mindful, which leads to mindfulness, Mindfulness, as it develops, leads to concentration. And concentration, when um, developed strongly, a a mindful concentration, opens up to wisdom. We can cut through, we can see through our normal confusion and see things as they really are. Excuse me. Trust. For some people, the word faith is a bit of a, a loaded word or a trigger, you know, reminding us of kids trying to, you know, either going to Sunday school or uh, not having enough faith. Or For some people, faith is a very profound and inspirational word. But most people can relate to trust. Another word, by the way, that's a... Uh, as well a translation of sada is confidence. They're all related. There's that quality that overcomes doubt, the hindrance of doubt, that somehow allows the heart to open to see what's here and respond wisely. Because when the doubt is not operative, the fear is not as gripping and what can be replaced or what can what emerges when fear is not there is this sense of okayness with the world, somehow feeling that the universe or life is benevolent. This is something to explore, actually, in your own practice, how you hold 
the universe. How you hold life or the Dharma. Is it, is life dangerous? Now certainly it has danger in it. No question about it. There's the first noble truth. Things, there is suffering in life. Um, but as one develops more and more in practice and if the way I see it, as you become more tuned to the way things really are, there is, um, there is a benevolence in the universe. There is, uh, otherwise, what would be the point of living in harmony with life? It's only when we're out of harmony that um, we get gripped by fear. But even to the uh, the capacity to find that place of centeredness in ourselves, when we quiet down, when we are not lost in confusion, the natural expression of our true nature that emerges is love, is wisdom, and a, a sense of connection with life. Now, if life was a dangerous, was ultimately dangerous, who would want to connect with it? Who would want to open up from that cocoon of seeming protection into something greater? So, ultimately, the truth reveals that life is uh, trustable. Now, it doesn't usually work out on the timetable that we want it or the plan that we want it. And it's not that, okay, well, if I do everything I'm supposed to and mind my P's and Q's, I'll be taken care of. That's not how it works, is it? Right? And we can try to be good boys and girls, you know, but bad things happen to good people, as we know. And this is uh, one of the great mysteries of, um, that we're called to surrender to. The Buddha said, if you try to understand karma in too refined a way, you go crazy. It's one of the four imponderables. You know, why things happen, why this happens, and what's the cause of it. You need to look over more than one lifetime to make, have any kind of sense of this, which is not a requisite for doing this practice. You don't have to. It helps to get some sense of a bigger picture. Um, by the way, I, I can, how many people are thinking, what are the other three? <laughs> <laughs> that almost, every time I say that, it, so I, I'll just say, so you don't have to, I don't have to answer eight people. Uh, the other three imponderables, the range of a Buddha mind, of what's possible to know, the fully awake, awakened mind, the range of a mind in, uh, in complete samadhi, absorption, the highest absorption states, and how it all began. Mm, yeah. Don't go there, right? <laughs> now, um, doubt is one of the classic five hindrances, as, as most of you probably know. And it is something that comes to all of us. So it's, it's important to realize that if you have doubt, you're not doing it wrong or messing up in your practice. You know, even before the Buddha was, uh, just before the Buddha was enlightened, as perhaps you're familiar with the story, the last thing that Mara tempted him with after visions of beautiful nymphs and uh, being attacked by the armies and arrows. And uh, after all of that, the Buddha was not moved. And then Mara said to him, what makes you think you've got the right to become enlightened? Planting that seed of doubt into him. It was the final trump card, right? And it didn't work. As the Buddha reflected and he said, as the earth is witness for the countless lifetimes that I've worked, to achieve this freedom, I have a right. And he touched his hand to the ground, and right after that he became awakened. But there it is, just before the full enlightenment of the Buddha, there was doubt. And it's also useful to know that Mara came to the Buddha even after he was enlightened. This is useful 
in, in a number of different um, uh, parts of the Pali Canon, Mara come to visit the Buddha and try to confuse him. The Buddha would each time respond, I see you, Mara. And as soon as he said, I see you, Mara, then Mara, who is the embodiment of confusion, of evil and temptation, would kind of slink away. But what does that mean, that Mara came to visit the Buddha, even a fully enlightened one? One could use that image, that metaphor, to say those thoughts can come, even to a fully awakened one. As you're completely clear, you're not bothered by them, you're not confused by them, but they still arise. And I'm sure everybody knows, you know, just think of Jesus on the cross after doing all the work that he did, so sure. And then there were those moments of doubt, why hast thou forsaken me? So if you do have doubt and you do have fear, you've got some pretty good company. And we don't have to beat ourselves up for being not as evolved as we thought we should be. All that does is just create more of a, a sense of confusion and doubt. <clears throat> so when you have fear and confusion, where do you draw your trust from? What do you know that you can access that uh, allows you to face your fear, to find the courage to face your fear? And I thought we'd do both uh, lecture and also some um, participation. So where do you, where do you find, it, what's your source of trust or faith? Anyone? Just, in fact, why don't we just go inside, because we all have it, okay? Think of a time when you were scared, maybe even in these last weeks and month or so. What helps you access that place of trust or faith that doesn't get completely spun out? Think of the wiser moments when you're able to find your center. What do you absolutely know that allows you to do that? And even if it's not absolutely no, what do you intuit or sense? Okay. Just here from the wisdom here in the, the group, we'll take a, a few comments. Okay. And that's the talking stick. Yeah. Um, when I think about my previous experiences in which it's actually all worked out, so I have sort of, there's reliability in my own experience. Excellent. Okay. Look at your whole life up until now. And all the times that you said, oh my God, what if it doesn't work out? And that somehow it's led you to the next thing. Thank you. Great. Sometimes I become aware that what I'm worrying about is really an illusion. And then I touch in with my heart and it's peaceful. And still my mind's going wild, and then I just concentrate on my heart. Mm -hmm. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. Back there. Bye. I was almost uh, reluctant to share this experience because it runs very deep in me, but I think perhaps it'll mean something to other people as well. Okay, can you hear me now? It has to do with the events of September 11th. And it's an experience I shared with my dear friend Gail, who sits to my side. And that was afterwards. I have a capacity of deep empathy for others. And I found myself recalling the personal stories I'd heard of people who had been caught in the disaster in the World Trade Center. And I placed myself several times a day, without a plan to do so, in the beings of various people I'd heard about, imagining that experience. And I became... I wouldn't say preoccupied with it, but it kept coming back again. I had such tremendous grief and tremendous um, pain for them. And one story in particular that I'm sure everybody else here heard 
stuck with me. And I kept going back to that one. And that was one of the stewardesses on one of the planes that went into the World Trade Center who was reporting on the self, a cell phone to a supervisor. Well, I see water and I see big buildings. And then she said, oh, God, oh, my God. And that was the end of the communication. I kept putting myself in her skin and having that experience as best I could imagine it. And the pain was enormous. And then one night, a Wednesday night after I'd been here, I think on the second Wednesday after the World Trade Center disaster, I was lying in bed and it came back to me again. I thought, oh, not again. And that, what can I do? And all of a sudden I knew. And I just tucked the concept of that experience with that person in my heart, kind of just wrapped her up. And I suddenly felt like it's what I, that compassion and that love was what I could do for this person who's now gone. And of course, it was also something I could do for me. And since, and that peace, just tremendous peace followed. Mm -hmm. So my trust is in the goodness, I guess, of my own heart. Mm -hmm. And that our tremendous capacity for compassion. Mm -hmm. So as other stories have come to me of people once removed from those who died, uh, stories in the newspapers, I've been able each time just <coughs> to go back to that place. Mm -hmm. And it's been tremendously healing and helpful. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank so. you. So there is a place in you of wisdom and compassion that's greater than the overwhelm and the fear. And if you can just come back to it, it's not even you, you know, when you think about it. It's both you and not you. There's something much greater than, than that, that small um, analytical mind that tries to figure things out to just hold it. Because that which is compassionate with the fear or that which is aware of the, the fear or the overwhelm is not afraid and is not overwhelmed. It's bigger than it. It's a bigger container than it. Thank you. Yeah. That uh, story reminds me of something that I have been pondering since September the 11th. Uh, in my addiction to the TV, I was channel surfing and I happened upon mm -hmm. one of the PBS stations that was replaying one of <clears throat> Joseph Campbell's uh, interviews with Bill Moyers. And in my channel surfing, I only heard him say <clears throat> perhaps, you know, uh, two minutes. And so, it, it, so what I heard was out of context. Mm -hmm. But what he said was um, that, there, that every day you hear stories of people putting themselves into great danger to help a stranger and uh, that it would lead some, you, you hear about uh, people who, who see someone that's fallen into a lake and, and they will go after that person even though they don't know that person. Mm -hmm. And in that moment they put aside their wife, their family, their children, and that it would lead some philosophers to believe that we are all one. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I have not been able to, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I, I don't, I, but I have replayed that over mm -hmm. and over yeah. about how that's an instinct. Yes. It's not even a decision. Right. There's something in us that would sacrifice our, our own lives. I think it was Schopenhauer, was it Schopenhauer or Kierkegaard when, uh, who talked about that as a great mystery, how we can do that. It, yes. This is a change of beat. I take refuge in Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> Good. Say a bit more. What me worry? <laughs> and and what do you uh, and how does it touch that? How, how does it touch you? Well, the absurdity of life, uh, the fact that I am like Alfred E. Newman in just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also think of those deathless words at the end of, uh, oh my goodness, it's, it's this, oh, Casablanca, when uh, Humphrey Bogart says to Ingrid Bergman, you know, the, what happens to these two little lives really doesn't matter in the world. That yeah, there's a, a hill of beans. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a bigger story out there. Uh, so I take refuge in my own, um, it, in the absurdity of my ego that says that what I fear or what I want or my pain or my suffering is really important in the world and it really isn't. It's, it's all a thought. Mm 
and an emotion, and as such, is subject to error. Mm -hmm. Excellent. <laughs> so, <laughs> what me? Were we? <laughs> and and what you're pointing to is one of the things that I wanted to mention is that where our minds can't wrap around the whole this experience or really any experience when you get down to it if we're trying to figure out with our analytical mind it, it, the circuitry gets blown so at some point and particularly when it's not clear just uh, to some how to proceed or whatever we um, we need to let go of figuring out and knowing all the answers until they become obvious that's where we really get stuck in our need to know the answer, the right thing, or what to do, or how we feel even, and to just sit with what's really true, or what's really here. And um, at some point, really, trust involves a surrender. It's a surrender of control. When you are, when you're in fear, what we're trying to do is somehow have a, a control, a desperate kind of, you know, let's get on top of this, and if there's an agitated energy and not a, a, a clarity of focus, it just creates more fear because there's this desperate urge to control that most of us have. Whereas trust involves an active, a moment of surrender where you let go of the control. And as if you've done any kind of practice, you know that the heart of awakening is the ability to let go. You know, the, the first truth, there's suffering. The second truth, the cause of suffering is attachment. The third truth, as we can let go of our attachment, as we can see clearly, and in that seeing clearly, we are not bound to try to control. That's where the freedom lies. So letting go of figuring out the answers is tremendously freeing. They come to us in their own time, but usually not because we're trying to get to the bottom of it. There's a beautiful line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, um, stop, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. <laughs> and, and that's how the... It's like when you get out of your cerebral pouncing to create some space, the wisdom <coughs> naturally can shine through, which is how you know, Einstein said ultimately uh, the, the great... Uh, the great epiphanies that he had and all science has ultimately comes from letting go of the thinking mind to just let this natural wisdom from who knows where shine through. And I brought with me uh, around, this is one of the points I wanted to mention, uh, a, um, a piece that somebody wrote from uh, a retreat that I've read from time to time. This person had a hard time, on, it was her first retreat, to get it all and understand what was going on and understand her mind and how many ways she got lost. And she got it before the end of the retreat. And she wrote just before the end of the retreat. A um, couple of days she had to enjoy it. And, but you had to go, she had to go through all that to get to that place. The one thing that is indelibly in my brain is remembering you don't have to figure it out. That would never, ever register in my brain as an option before. Yesterday, I was walking and struggling in my brain, thinking round and round, and this voice came into my head that said, you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself and I resumed my walking. What a revelation. <laughs> if you can be there with the unknowing, in the Christian tradition they, they call it the cloud of unknowing, or don't know mind, as, uh, as uh, Sun Sanim says, where is it all, what's the meaning of life? Don't know, is the Korean accent, you know. <laughs> Where'd you come from? Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you going to? Don't know. <laughs> he says, only keep don't know mind. If you can remember to keep just don't know mind, everything else will take care of itself because it keeps you right here, right now. Now, that doesn't mean you just, you know, you don't take care of business and plan, but you do what you do to plan 
And then you just see how it turns out instead of giving life a report card. Well, <laughs> did it work? <laughs> Is life passing my test? You don't know. That's, that's the mystery of life. It's, too, it's much more creative than our rational mind says, oh, this is how it should be. Don't know. So, what, and which is the same as, what, me worry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is somebody else. Was there any, anybody else? No? Okay, last one. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. Um, going back to your question about yeah. finding refuge, yes. for me, refuge is always, not exclusively, but very reliably in nature. And when I feel confusion inside me, I just look outside. And um, it's especially helpful for addressing the comparative mind problem when you're unhappy and you're suffering and you think, gee, I have no right to be suffering because think about, you know, the poor people in Afghanistan or, you know, thinking of somebody else who's more miserable than you are and th so therefore you shouldn't be miserable. If you look outside and you see birds going about their business, there's no comparison because they don't have an agenda. It's not a conspiracy. They're just doing what they do because that's the way they live. Mm -hmm. And it's very, uh, I find that extremely reassuring mm -hmm. that earth abides is the phrase that comes back to me when I remember that the world is still there and I'm part of it and it's going on. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And nature is the, the great connector. It gets us out of our small reality. And also from that perspective, life is continually transforming from our limited perspective of the human realm we've experienced a catastrophe yeah. no doubt about it and there is pain and there's grief and there's sadness and anger and confusion and compassion and all of those feelings from the perspective a bigger perspective of the earth or even beyond the earth it's not so different than, say, when um, somebody takes raid to an ant nest or, a, or, or a, you know, roaches, you know, or something like that, where thousands and thousands, to those beings, that was the Holocaust. Okay? Now, it, it, now, you might find yourself bristling at this, well, how can you compare? But from a bigger perspective, we are just one species out of millions of the most, the most powerful and the, most, uh, the one that has the most influence in, on this realm. But there's many realms, and it's simply the recycling of life through the many forms. And connecting with nature, you see the natural order of things. Um, so... As we get that bigger perspective, whether it's through nature or through letting go of our own limited awareness, there is more of a sense of, of connection and, and trust. Okay. okay. So I want to do a couple of things before, while we still have time. Um, one way that we can um, both get in touch with our trust as well as... Um, uh, develop it is through equanimity practice. We're so uh, moved, all of us, we've all been shaken. We talked about it last week. We've been shaken and so many feelings flood through. If you're doing a lot of spiritual practice, your mind might go towards compassion, okay? Which is a beautiful a divine abode, caring, but we can be so open in our heartfelt caring that we can get overwhelmed easily. And if we get too overwhelmed, it's hard to access that, that place of centeredness and balance that is both useful to us and to others. So equanimity can be um, a kind of balancer in the face of fear. Now there's, have you done equanimity practice here? Has Sylvia done equanimity practice with you? Uh, here's just uh, something that I'll, I'll uh, briefly share with you and then there's one more, one more thing I wanna have us do. Uh, the equanimity practice is, there's two ways that I find to do it. The classical one is kind of pointing to what was 
what was just said, which is, which is that life is just unfolding in this. There is a natural, a lawful karma un, that's unfolding. And the classical lines in the equanimity practice, it's two lines. And this is all, by the way, in Sharon Salzberg's book, uh, Loving Kindness, where she goes to the different Brahma Viharas. You are heir to your karma, where all beings are heir to their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Now, the first time I heard that, just notice if you have any kind of reaction, like, whoa, that's a bit cool. That's a bit unforgiving. But it's a very profound understanding if it's held with that spirit of compassion and caring. You can look at karma and think of it in terms of, you can easily get into um, blame or guilt. You know, what did I do to deserve that? Or what did those people do to deserve that in the World Trade Center? You know, that just boggles the mind. And as I said, it's one of the four unthinkables. But What's happened in the past has led you to this moment, and what you do with this moment, you have some input in. And if, if you meet the moment with kindness and with generosity and with wisdom, those are the sources of, of wholesome unfolding of karma beyond. If you meet it with greed, hatred, and delusion, you're sowing the seeds for, uh, for unhappiness. There's no figuring out or explaining how something like that could happen with the rational mind. Just like we can't figure out how the Holocaust could happen or how in the history of humanity, it's, I mean, those, those two events are just kind of uh, highlighting, you know, an intense manifestation of the history of humanity whether it's the Inquisition or the Crusades or the, you know, everything, you know, there is, um, there is suffering. There's also joy and there's love and there's beauty. And so that's not the only story. But to have a bigger picture, again, as I said, with over the course of more than one lifetime, the Buddha said, uh, what's more, he asked the monks one, one time, what's more, the, the, um, uh, the water in all the four oceans or the tears we've shed through our many lifetimes. Much greater are the tears we've shed, he said. We've been doing this a long, <laughs> long time. What's greater, the, the highest mountain, Mount Meru, I think it is, or all the bones from your previous births? Greater are the bones. So it kind of gives you a little bit of perspective on things. Just want to put that in there as you try to grapple with why would something happen to somebody else like that. But the equanimity meditation points to the fact that everybody is on their own journey. They can only, you can only do so much to help them along in their journey. Whether you're a parent helping along your child, you know, Oh gosh, you know, I hope everything works out okay for this beautiful boy or, or girl. But at some point, you don't have control and you need to let go and just bless them on their journey. You can do what you can do and that's it. And the same with your caring about all the people that you care for, whether in the World Trade Center or the people close to you. That caring has to be balanced with a sense of equanimity. And in the, the spirit, you are heir to your karma, meaning you are on your own journey. Your happiness and happy, and, or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. You can't rescue them from what they are going through, what they need to go through. Um, 
I mean, you can do, perhaps you can rescue if you're in the situation where you can do something about it. But that understanding of everybody being on their own journey holds that deep caring that we have or that deep fear or, or um, trepidation that we might have in a different way. Things are the way they are. And that's what it comes down to. And we can do whatever we can to make them as good as they can, as we can, but ultimately it's out of our control. Letting go of control. So I wanted to both do an equanimity, do that equanimity meditation with you and, um, and offer another alternative to an equanimity meditation. If that one seems a little bit hard to relate to, we can call on our own sense of balance and centeredness by just evoking, just inclining the mind towards that. We can forget. We can forget and so get really confused. Just like we can incline the mind towards, um, towards loving kindness. Or when we, when we are very frightened, something else I wanted to mention, when we're very frightened, have you noticed how your mind might go to prayer? Okay. Okay. Prayer is, is, is inclining the mind towards something that is inspiring and centering and gives us a vision that we can, we can rest in. Because when we're very confused and frightened, our mind is, is agitated and goes to scary thoughts. Whereas if you have a vision, oh, may this happen. Or please God, if that's the, the words that you use, please God, make so-and-so happen. It's like it gives your mind something to connect with that is an uplifting and uh, wholesome and positive vision that you, you can start to align yourself with. So we can, al- and, and it's aligning yourself with something much vaster, much greater than, than you. You know, you've let go of control when you say, not my will, but thy will. Whether you think in terms of a creator God or the Dharma or the mystery or whatever. It's surrendering that and having a, a vision and um, that prayer is inclining the mind that way. So first with the equanimity practice, I just uh, would like you to uh, go inside. And think of, of somebody in your life who might be having a hard time, who you have a natural compassion for right now. And first you can get in touch on the compassionate level. I care. I care about your suffering. And let yourself feel your care for them, about them. And now, just a, a few moments of this classic equanimity meditation. You're, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness <coughs> and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Now another way of saying that, a shorthand way of saying that in this classical spirit is you are on your own journey. I care about you and you are on your own journey. And see if you can hold that caring with a bit less control and a bit more surrender to however things are. Could you get a sense of a spaciousness around the compassion? Now, equanimity, uh, the near enemy of equanimity, what looks like equanimity but is very different, is indifference or apathy. So if you're saying, oh, 
it's cool, whatever happens, you know, that's their problem. That's not equanimity. Equanimity still has this element of connection and caring, but there's an ease in the, the grip that, you're, that you've had. Oh, okay. Things will unfold the way they unfold. All right, now I'd like to do uh, a, um, uh, an alternative equanimity practice, okay? as I was just mentioning before. Suppose, put yourself in a kind of, um, in a situation that might evoke some either fear or some agitation in your mind. Maybe something that you've been going through recently. Have a picture. And now, just call on equanimity. May I have balance. May I find my center in the midst of this. Or may I have equanimity as I meet this? And you can use any one of those words and just call on it. Just ask for it. Evoke it. May I have balance right in the midst of this. May I find my center. (coughs) May I have equanimity. see what it's like to find your center. One good place to, uh, to start in case you're lost is first to feel your body. We mentioned that last week, just so you're grounded. And then in that connection, finding the, a space inside. Able to, do you get a sense of that? It's, it's not a big esoteric secret. It's just remembering to incline your mind in that direction and give it something to, to come back to and out of that sense of balance, the trust that's been there can shine through. So they work, they work hand in hand. You know something to be true. We all have a way that we, that we deal with our confusion when the wisdom shines through. There's something that we absolutely know. The, the hard part is remembering while we're in the middle of that frenetic space. Okay? To just incline your mind, you know, sometimes uh, I I tell people to write down something on a piece of paper and have it in their wallet, and even if they forget, they know that they're supposed to look at something in their wallet when they forget, you know. (laughs) Oh, yeah, find balance. That's it. And so practicing some equanimity, particularly as we're going through all of these intense feelings, is, is not only a gift to yourself, but a gift to everybody else. And what I I want to end with is um, this thought of how your practice is is really a potent contribution to others. Um, You maybe have heard heard Thich Nhat Hanh tell the story of the boat people, you know, as they're they made the treacherous journey from uh, from Vietnam to to escape, and it was v- many many boats did not make it uh, because it was very dangerous water waters. They were pirates. There were um, uh, you know, people trying to uh, turn them back. He said, of the boats that made it, the one common denominator that they all had was somebody, one person in the boat, who could remain calm. That makes sense, doesn't it? If everybody is losing it and freaking out, that's a recipe for disaster. But if there was one person who could remain calm, it reminded everybody else that that's possible. 
Now that doesn't mean that the person who was calm was, you know, a Buddha just kind of languishing, saying, hey, it's all going to be okay, everything's going to work out. But even in the midst of their own fear and confusion, there is a sense of centeredness that they could draw on and remind the others. So in a way, that becomes a very strong motivation for your own development of practice and trust. That it's, it both feels good on the inside and it's a real gift that you could give to everyone else. Because here we are making our own um, awakening a priority in our life. If we can't find that center, if we're not the person in the boat, who is going to be? Uh, now, you don't have to feel pressure when I say that, <laughs> but just incline the mind to see this is something that you're doing not just for yourself, but it's a real gift to everybody else to more and more find your center. And sometimes it's a bit more inspiring and, and accessible to realize that you're finding it for the other people in the boat when you can't do it for yourself. Okay. Now, there are times when you're going to, when you need to let go and get hysterical and cry and grieve and all of the things that you go through. I'm not saying, yeah, you've got to keep it together and just keep a stiff upper lip through it all. It's processing the fear and processing the confusion and all of those things that you feel and finding the right outlets for them. We talked about that last week, the right ways to hold them or the, the, the skillful ways to hold them and still inclining the mind to, as you go through it, find a place of trust and, and centeredness in the middle of it so that other people see, oh, there's a person in the boat. Yeah, this is really tough. Oh, yeah, I can come back to that place inside as well. Trust doesn't mean that everything is going to work out just fine. Trust really means, for me, as we develop our practice, it means that this moment is workable and I can trust in my awareness that when I come to that difficult situation, the awareness can meet that moment then as well. Not that, oh, it's going to be just the way I planned, but just that I can trust in the awareness itself to meet the moment as it arises. As you said, you know, it's worked that way through our whole life. And when we blow it and when we, when we get confused or we, we learn our lesson a hard way, we're still learning our lesson, okay? It's never too late to learn our lesson. But we can trust that as we more and more develop our awareness, we can meet that moment wisely, without confusion, without the, uh, the mind that's trying to figure out, that just says, oh, this is the appropriate response. And that is a tremendous gift that you can give others, being in the present as best you can and trusting that you can meet the moment. Okay? So it's time to, to close, and uh, we'll just do a short loving-kindness to close, and we'll keep um, Susan in mind. This will just take a moment. And, uh, if you can, please stay. So breathing in and out of your heart center. Breathing in benevolent energy from around you. It's here, waiting to respond to your own goodness of heart. Breathing it in and filling your whole being with that goodness. And as you breathe out, surround yourself with that energy and extend it outwards. May I find my center in the midst of my fears. May I trust in the awareness that can meet the moment. May my compassion and caring be balanced with equanimity. 
and then as has been requested we can bring uh, Sue to our circle. May you feel the support and the, the caring of everyone here. May you be healed to the full extent possible. And may your good heart protect you as you go on your journey and feel all the love from others who care about you. And then to include everyone here and other people and beings on this land and then radiating out to all beings in all directions as I want happiness in my life may all be happy as I want peace May all beings have peace in their lives. As I want kindness, may all beings grow in kindness and caring and learn to express their love well. As I want wisdom, may all beings have the highest wisdom and see their true nature. May any merit that we develop here through our being together be shared for the benefit of all beings. May all beings live in peace. Mm -hmm.